Some of you may know the Jewish catalog. That's, uh, you know, one of the first ways that there was really a, um, a, a very big push to put Judaism into people's hands at home and not to keep it in an ivory tower, not to, you know, keep access for all, only those who could access the language or the text or some kind of traditional knowledge of ritual and how you do that. Rabbi Michael Stressfeld was one of the first to say, how do we make Judaism accessible to everybody, to the Jew in the pew, to people who are curious and maybe aren't even Jewish yet? Um, and so the Jewish catalog came out in the 70s and, um, and really made that possible and really made that happen for so many people who remain so grateful um, for that first you know, access that they really felt they had to doing Judaism at home or having access even to Judaism in the shul, in the synagogue. Um, he's, uh, he's published a lot and you should look him up and, um, but his book on, on living Jewishly is really an incredible, an incredible work. Uh, and I went to find my copy, uh, to hold it up and show y'all, but I realized yet a third copy of his book is gone. I couldn't find it because I'd given it to somebody who was exploring Judaism. I said, you have to read this. So a book of life by uh, Rabbi Michael Strassfeld is a beautiful, beautiful book about living Jewishly every day uh, and how to do that. So um, also he, uh, he is a library, which I don't quite understand because I can't ever remember melodies if they don't have words. I can't remember them at all. And he's just a library of Hasidic nigunim. He grew up marinating in that stuff. Um, and so he has a Hasidic nigun for any occasion, anytime, anything. So he's going to be sharing, I hope, uh, one with us. If not, I can tell you one that I like that you do. Um, and he has a CD <laughs> of Nibunim, um, if you are somebody who likes to chant and likes um, uh, the Hasidic uh, flavor of, of moving into Jewish chant and what, how that moves us and opens us, he's got a great CD on that too. So um, without further ado, Rabbi Michael Strassfeld, take us, send a text. Wait, we Thank you. <laughs> Andy, I'll, I'll I'll take requests later if you want. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's say a bracha. We usually say a bracha before we study together. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav V'Tivanu La'Asuk B'Divrei Torah. Blessed are you, God, Spirit of the Universe, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and calls us to engage with our sacred literature, the words of Torah. Amen. So, <clears throat> hello, everybody. And thank you very much, Amy. Um, your, uh, I don't know, your praise, it's embarrassing. <laughs> but it's, but um, uh, I feel, you know, yeah, it's great to have this opportunity to, as you said, to spend some time together. Um, and, <clears throat> um, and I'm sure, actually, all the, the people on this call, um, uh, feel uh, lucky um, to have your presence with them um, uh, all the time um, uh, in good times and bad times and, you know, and um, being on lockdown or, you know, being out in, in, uh, in the countryside. Um, and uh, uh, I only wish I'd lived in California. Um so I, I thought I, we could um, begin, um, and even though each of the sessions stands on, it, on its own, um, there will be some themes that continue, but I thought it'd be useful to begin um, before we jump into the next text is 
if um, um, if people had, you know, I was thinking about um, last time's text, if there were things that struck you after we were together that you would like to share with the group, or perhaps there's a, a question uh, that you didn't get a chance to ask. Or... Kind of with Klein, but she already raised her hand. <laughs> <laughs> She emailed me and I said that you might want to ask Rabbi Strasfeld that question. Yeah. Well, so, and, okay, let, let's get some questions. And then, I, uh, but I'd also like to hear, you know, a couple people um, just what's the thing that struck them the most um, from last time's teaching? What's the, perhaps the, the thing they're going to want to carry with them, um, you know, put it in their, their, um, their wallet of, 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 texts and values and teachings that uh, they want to carry with them um, through their life, um, or at least for a while. Um, so both questions or or or, uh, or, or comments like that. Um, so wait. Susan, uh, why don't you, you start, Susan? Yes. Well, I, I have a question about the interpretation of last week's uh, section that we studied. And that is, um, how do the Orthodox um, interpret this um, Talmud section that we covered? It, it seems to be that um, it was very difficult for them to interpret it the way we chose to. You may have to give some history, so we're bring everybody's mind yeah, up. Yeah, well, I, I, the, the text uh, on the surface, um, you know, is uh, about uh, three... Uh, people who are not Jewish who uh, come first to the sage Shammai, and then uh, when they get rejected by him, they go to the sage Hillel, um, who has you know completely completely accepts them and accepts them. And I think uh, the 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 problem that some uh, traditional Orthodox or traditional uh, might have with the with the story is that um, Hillel's response to the, these people who are coming, who, who we, you know, we talked about have, um, they have conditions to their, to engaging in this process of conversion. So the, just to mention one, one says, you know, teach me the whole Torah on, while I'm standing on one foot. Right. So, you know, Shammai basically says, you know, get out of here. And, you know, Hillel, Gives uh, uh, you know the <clears throat> um, some of you may remember like the Reader's Digest condensed version of of <clears throat> the rabbinic tradition. Um, you know one sentence and rest is commentary. Go study. Um, but one of the amazing things he does is he immediately converts the people. Um, and we talked. There was a question last time about. Well, wait a second. I, I thought there was some ambivalence about conversion or there's a tradition that someone comes and expresses an interest in converting and you're supposed to send them away two times or something, you know, a certain amount of times and as a kind of to test their sincerity. Um, and here, you know, Hillel, um, you know, immediately converts them. And uh, I, I think it's, um, it's a, a variant tradition that is, I think, you know the the Talmud and rabbinic texts have you know these attitudes of welcoming to people who are interested in Judaism and also 
a tradition of uh, suspicion, of of unwelcome, um, and and even of suspicion of the motives of of why would someone want to convert and join this persecuted people? You know, that's one way. I think over centuries, um, you know. The, but the thing is <clears throat> that the the Talmud is this vast, and rabbinic Judaism is this vast um, corpus, um, and ultimately um, the the practice, even if it may not be exactly halakha Jewish law, the practice is. Um, not, not to, uh, I mean, if you go to an Orthodox rabbi today, I don't know if they would send you away. Maybe some would, I don't know. But I think they would say, look, you have to study. You have to take a course of study. You have to learn about Judaism, um, not just be interested in Judaism. And, you know, if you do this course of study and you're interested and the rabbi was supposed to work with you, then, you know, great. At the end of that, uh, there'll be a conversion. And, you know, and each rabbi can have diff- somewhat different criteria. Um, and, <clears throat> and in fact, I would say, though, that wasn't in the, in the text at all, is, um, and, and partly that has to do with contemporary life, right? So, <clears throat> So an Orthodox rabbi won't um, accept the conversion done by a non-Orthodox rabbi. Um, and as, you know, I've, I've worked with many people uh, converting over the years, um, and I tell them when they come, I say, look, you have to understand um, there are consequences to the choice you're making to work with me um, as a non-Orthodox rabbi. And I, I say like there's two there's two um, there's two factors that lead to that. Um, I mean the fact is I would encourage, I would encourage people to take a course of study. Um, so the Orthodox rabbi might have had a different course of study, but fundamentally the people had to go study. I didn't go and just convert them, you know, after the first meeting. Um, <clears throat> but the difference one difference was political. That is, I'm not an Orthodox rabbi. Like, um, and for, I think, just about any Orthodox rabbi, what non-Orthodox rabbis <clears throat> do is not considered legitimate. It's like, whatever. I never got my BA, so I can't say I'm a college. I'm, I've just made that up. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm just not a college graduate. So without a piece of paper without the, the right rabbinic ordination, you're just not, you know, you're not really a rabbi. Um, so I would say that's kind of a political difference. And the other is actually there's some sub, a more substantial difference. Um, um, many Orthodox rabbis would say, well, if you're going to convert, it's not just your desire to join the Jewish people, but you have to commit to observing the mitzvot. You have to, to, to commit to doing Jewish observance. And if the person who is thinking of converting says, I have a lot of Jewish friends and they don't do, I mean, they're eating cheeseburgers and lobster and they never go to synagogue. So 
you know, why is it different? So, so the Orthodox rabbi, we say, well, that's the, the truth. That's the reality of today. But if I, or, as Orthodox rabbi, am going to convert someone, I want them to like, express this commitment. You know, I mean, I may not ask you to check off all 613 commandments, but I may say, I want you to have some Shabbat practice, but I'm not, you know, you don't have to check off all the the boxes. Um, and, th- and that depends on the Orthodox rabbi. Some would be more demanding, some less. That's a real difference. I, I um, my own um, policy was to say, uh, I, I think there's lots of ways to be Jewish. Um, and, uh, you know, I accept I guess if someone said, I have no interest in Judaism, I don't believe in anything, I would say, I don't understand what's going on here. But <clears throat> I don't think there's, you have to get three out of five on my list or one out of five. Um, as I, said, I think there's many ways to be Jewish. And I also think um, that people are on a journey and the way they're going to be Jewish now and the way they're going to be Jewish 10 years from now or 20 years from now is not the same. And it doesn't mean that I think, oh, well, once you convert, you'll become more and more Jewish. No, not necessarily. I think uh, people's lives uh, change their circumstances, et cetera. Um, And in that sense, um, I think it's a little little bit closer to Hillel's point of view, which is let's be welcoming. Um, And I I do think the bottom line for Hillel is like, you never know how things are going to work out. So let's let's uh, let's imagine the best about people, not not be suspicious. Um, so I think that so, but that was not a, a long extra answer. I think um, the Orthodox rabbi said, "Yeah, that's just not our practice. Like what Hillel did isn't our practice." Um, you know, and and, and that would be the the answer. Um, um, you know, the larger ways of reading the text that we did that it's about not just about conversion, it's about dealing with anything unexpected. How do you respond to to challenges, to new things? I, I think an Orthodox rabbi could, could read that the same way, though they may say, and and actually we'll 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 touch on this in, in, in uh, today's text. Um, you know, there's limits um, you know, sometimes the halakha gives you the answer to the question. The answer could be no, or it could be yes. But there are certain things that are just not allowed. Um, um, uh, so um, this isn't a question of like, how do you respond to a challenging thing? It's because sometimes the halakha uh, gives you the response. And I think for some people, that's part of the appeal of orthodoxy is this, this sense of, there's structure and answers um, to, to many things. So let me stop, I think. So D- Dana had her hand up and then it went down. So Dana, did you want to still ask your question? And then Bert's going to talk. So, um, and then we're going to go on to the text for today. Yeah. Great. Bert, All right, Bert. say something and then uh, we'll on to the text. Traditionally, wasn't circumcision required for males who got converted? Right. So I, that's, that's a great point, Bert, because I, I think what um, <clears throat> an Orthodox rabbi would say about the Hill story is, oh, when he said he converted right away, 
he took them to the mikvah and and circumcised them if it was a male. Cool. Right? The text just doesn't say that, right? Um, like, uh, well, of course, duh. The Aramaic for duh is chita. Like, obviously, like it would have meant mikvah and mila and conversion. I mean, and uh, circumcision. Yeah, and and that could be correct. In other words. Um, I don't think that's only a, a, an orthodox reading of the text um, to, to you know, avoid the problem. Um, you know, it just wasn't important for the, for the story. Well, the important point in the story was he did it immediately. So the non-studying would still be a challenge for the, for the orthodox rabbi, because that is, that is the practice and has been, as far as I know, for a very long time. Um, and, and it's based on, on uh, rabbinic sources. And it's, you know, there's a source that says when someone comes to asking to convert, you should teach them some of the uh, important mitzvot commandments and some of the minor mitzvot. Um, and that's not spelled out, you know. And, you know, that would, that would suggest is that you don't have to study, have to know everything, right? Because it's saying, like, you should give them – some of it, you know, some important stuff, some of the other stuff. So they have some real sense of, of, of what Judaism is about. Um, not that you have to, you know, pass the test and you have to get over, you know, 90. Otherwise, you've, you know, you failed. You can't be. It's not like passing the bar. Or, um, but that's yeah, I think that's I think it's a, it's, uh, I'm glad you raised that because um, I, I think that's how they would they would read the text. Um, uh, Brenda, is your hand up? It is. Um, I have experience with this 35 years ago. My, um, husband and I went to a shul and the Orthodox rabbi said, you'll never be Jewish. There is no conversion. Goodbye. And so we went to university of Judaism and, uh, rabbi Neil had just started there and, um, we took the whole course and then, um, uh, being from England, he was not circumcised, and we found out that it's a covenant. So for the men that were circumcised, they got a ceremonial prick, um, but he had to be circumcised. And I um, mean, all the other people had all this questioning and all, and he said <laughs> the only question they asked was how painful was it? They figured he right. was committed. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, who, who okay, was who, who has the text? Rebecca, do you have the text or is it? I have the, I have the text. So I'm going to share a screen. Um, it, the text is, as you'll see right from the first line, um, and don't try and read ahead while I'm talking. Um, it's like driving and texting at the same time. So, um, so there's this group called the men of the great assembly. Um, and, uh, needless to say, or maybe it should be said, that they are all men, um, that there was this, uh, this was an institution, the Anche Knesset Hagadolah, uh, the men of the great assembly, that um, according to the rabbinic tradition existed in second temple times. So just uh, a really brief like history, right? So there's there's the first temple, Temple of Solomon. Um, it gets um, destroyed um, by the Babylonians. There's a Babylonian exile. Um, and then um, 
um, some of the Jews return um, to to Israel, the land of Israel, build the second temple. So we're talking about 516 or so um, BC, um, BCE, um, and in the this and that period becomes known as the Second Temple period by Jewish historians, and it continues from then until the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans in 70 A.D. So it's about you know 586 years or so um, that the Second Temple period exists, um, and um, um, and so in the rabbis. Uh, the rabbinic tradition, which comes, um, so the beginning of the of the rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, come towards the end of the Second Temple period, right? So that's when we begin to see evidence of the of rabbis, of uh, synagogues, of emerging the emerging rabbinic tradition. Um, and, but they, um, as and as we'll see in this text, and the rabbis imagination, um, they're not um, creating something that never existed before. They imagine that Abraham was, you know, wearing tefillin and uh, doing also other Jewish rituals. Um, And in fact, uh, that a number of the biblical characters studied in yeshivot, uh, (laughs) even though, like, there wasn't anybody around except them, you know. So, what yeshiva were they going to? Uh, studied, you know, and you know, in rabbinic texts. Well, not rabbinic. That was studying something, studying Torah. Um, and part of this imagination is that there was a group of people, like the rabbis, uh, and like the Sanhedrin, which were, you know was actually um, probably did exist in in. in uh, in, in, a, in some period of Jewish history of uh, like the Supreme Court, but with 70 uh, sages who was the, the final uh, uh, decider just as the Supreme Court in the United States, right? So bef- before the Sanhedrin, there was this group called the Men of the Great Assembly. Um, you know, scholars not coming from the Orthodox world uh, have say there's no evidence that this act group actually existed. Um, uh, we just we just don't know. There's no outside evidence, you know, no no documents that would support its existence. It doesn't prove it didn't exist. It just we have no no uh, evidence that it did exist. We don't have that much evidence from the second temple period in in general in general. So um so and, and what the Talmud tells us about this group is that they uh, made decisions about um, the liturgy, um, which we begin to see in, as I said, in the Second Temple period, the liturgy as we know it from the, the prayer book begins to emerge in this time. Um, we don't know that uh, that in in biblical times, um, first temple times, there were there were people were praying. Um, <laughs> obviously, the Psalms go back earlier, but we don't know, and we don't know what was being done in the in the in the temple in Jerusalem. Was the sacrifices accompanied 
by prayers, by psalms, by the Levite singing. Could be, but we just don't know. Um, so uh, one of the things they do is begin um, the liturgy, which is uh, uh, a very um, liberal scholars will say that the rabbinic tradition creates the, the liturgy, um, both the prayers that are not biblical prayers, uh, like the Amidah, um, as well as the concept of praying three times a day, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, so that's the introduction, just to know who these people are. So um, uh, I'll begin. Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi said, so he's a Talmudic scholar, said, why were they known as the men of the great assembly? Um, that is, why are they called great? That's what the question is really. Uh, why is it the great assembly? Why are they called that? And he gives the answer. Because they restored the crown of praise to God. What does that mean? We'll find out. Moses came and said, Ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor v'hanora. It's a biblical quotation from Deuteronomy 10.17. So uh, Moses praises God and says, God, the the great, the mighty, and the awesome. Uh, Gadol, great. um, Gibor, which can be, you know, Gibor can be, you know, courage, but also means uh, um, mighty, you know, powerful. And Nora, awesome, like Yamim Nora'im, the high holy days, so the, the awesome days, right? Um, and, um, you know, if we were sitting in a classroom, I would say, okay, who, where do you know this phrase from? Uh, you know, you get extra points for being the first to, to acknowledge it, but I won't do it on Zoom, just it takes too long. Um, so the, that phrase is in the Amidah. Uh, the prayer that's central to every uh, service, right near the beginning, right? Et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and um, when the rabbis <coughs> uh, went to... Um, create the Amidah prayer, which, uh, again, liberal scholars think was created by the rabbis. Um, they took this, this line um, from Deuteronomy and said, oh, this is, this is great. And, you know, if Moses said it, that's good. So let's, let's quote Moses. Um, you know, a lot of the, of the Amidah is written by the rabbis themselves, but um, sometimes they use biblical quotations um, in whole or in part. And so they use this to describe uh, God. So God is great, mighty, and awesome. And that's that's what um, we say uh, traditionally three times a day uh, in, in the Amidah. But later, the prophet Jeremiah came and said, uh, and Jeremiah was... Um, prophet who uh, um, prophesied the destruction of the first temple, and he lived through the destruction of the first temple. So he was, he was, he both foretold it and was there when it was destroyed and in the aftermath. So, so later the prophet Jeremiah came and said, Gentiles are destroying or plundering God's temple. 
Where is God's no-ra? Where is God's awesomeness? Therefore, Jeremiah, when praising God, omitted the attribute of awesome. So if we look at Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, um, it says, Osa chesed alafim, God does um, chesed, kindness to thousands, ha'el ha'gadol ha'gibor. So the exact same phrase, except it's missing one of the attributes. It's missing no-ra. Ha'el ha'gadol v'hagibor. So it's a, it's a wonderful example of how the rabbis use uh, the Bible, use the Torah um, verses to construct um, something that they, they are either strikes them or they, they, they want to talk about. And, it, and, and it's, oh, I don't, it's very hard to tell when they're doing what we might call midrash, you know, these fanciful interpretations, whether the, the verse is driving it or they're um, thinking about some issue and they say, ah, uh, look, here, here, this verse supports it. And um, they will see here they have great textual support. In other words, Jeremiah's verse sounds just like what Moses is saying, except it's missing one word. So there's, why, why didn't Jeremiah have the same thing as, as Moses, right? Jeremiah knew what Moses said, supposedly, whatever. So, um, so it's kind of a good question. Like, how come he left it out? Well, here's now we have a story to tell you why he left it out. Because he experienced the destruction of the of the temple, um, and he's and he said, "What's awesome? Why is God no ra? The temple's destroyed. You know, our enemies, you know, ransacked the temple. Um, you know, we were living in exile, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see God's awesomeness, and so Jeremiah took out no ra. Daniel." comes uh, later historically than um, Jeremiah. He comes and says, Gentiles are enslaving God's son. Where is God's mightiness? Daniel's uh, in the time of the the exile, the Babylonian exile. Um, so, you know, we're in, in exile and um, either spiritually or maybe literally, you know, um, the Jewish people are in, enslaved, or they're certainly subordinate. They don't have their own country. They don't have their own king. Um, so where is God's gibor? Where is God's mightiness? And um, again, there's um, uh, uh, a, a, a verse in, in, um, in uh, Daniel uh, where he, Daniel says, uh, I I pray and confess to Ha'el Hagadol Vahanara. Again, the same three words, but he has Narah, but he doesn't have Gibor. So each of them takes out one and leaves two. And you could ask, well, why did they take out only one? Why did they, didn't they take out Gadol and Gibor? Nobody asked that question, except we do. But, but, um, but also the verse supports one, which makes it striking, right? If if they took out two, you could say, well, he just 
he just wanted he was want to have a shorter service. So he he, he said one thing <laughs> instead of you know it saved all that time, you know. So um so it so that's the structure, right? So the so what, what you have here is Jeremiah and Daniel are responding to the actual circumstances of their lives. And they look around and they say, I can't pray this. I, I, I just, you know, that's not my experience. Um, and, um, and so, so then um, the, now we're going to come back. Wait, what was the question that was being asked here? Why are they called the men of the great assembly? Why are they called great? So that's the next paragraph. They, the men of the great assembly, came and said, on the contrary, this is the definition of mighty, of gibor, that God suppresses God's anger and his long-suffering toward the wrongdoers. And this is God's awesomeness, norah. For if not for the Holy One's awesomeness, Awesomeness has some different connotation these days. Awesome. Uh, awesomeness, how could one nation, Israel, survive amidst all the other oppressing nations? So basically, what they do is they, they redefine what those words mean, right? They redefine the, what, what does it mean to be mighty? It doesn't mean that you defeat your enemies. It means that you, you suppress your anger. And you have patience, right? You don't act immediately, um, and um, you 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 uh, wait things out. So that that that's a kind of mightiness. You know, there's expression Ezogi Bor, who is who's mighty, Kovesh at Yitro, who can conquer his his impulses, right? So someone who has control of himself, who doesn't just you know blurt out things that later they they really feel badly that they said them, or someone who physically responds to somebody else, um, you know, uh, without thinking, right? So there is a sense that that, that it takes a certain amount of strength um, to respond wisely rather than instinctually or emotionally. Um, and um, that there's something, you know, awesome about, um, you know, the fact that, you know, this is like, you know, uh, people, you know, some Jews like to say, well, that, you know, there's something special about the Jewish people. How else could they survive? And look at all those nations that what happened to the Etruscans. Nobody knows any Etruscans anymore. They're all disappeared. Like the story of the Jewish people is a miracle, right? Some people like, to say that, like to believe that. Um, and this is a, a version of that, right? So that it's here, it's saying it's God that has made this happen. Like it's miraculous that the Jewish people have survived all these years, all these persecutions, all these simulations, and it's because of God. That is God's no ra. Um, that's, that's what's awesome about God and the Jewish people. You know, and in some ways, the what they're uh, and partly addressing is um, the circumstances that they are living in. Um, uh, you know, I guess there were Jews living in in, uh, in the land of Israel in the Second Temple, but but um, um, certainly 
after the destruction, the second temple is destroyed, uh, we live in exile, right? Um, and um, in a certain way, um, this was a chat we, we talked at the beginning was sort of like, you know, how would Orthodox have understood that text? So um, for traditional Jews, for Jews who believe that uh, they're God's chosen people, um, uh, how do you explain the fact that uh, we were defeated and the temple was destroyed and we were uh, have gone into exile? So one answer, of course, is, well, we sinned. You know, uh, we did things wrong. The first temple, we worshipped idols, whatever it was. And so it's God's punishment. Um, and someday we will return. But it became an increasingly cha- increasing challenge as time went on and, you know, centuries passed and we still didn't get to go back. And if you think that God acts in history, then it becomes a real challenge of, well, why are the other religions triumphant? And we, you know, our temple was destroyed and we're exiles and we're, we're a small minority. And here, look at Christianity and here, look at Islam, you know. And, you know, Christianity specifically said, we have, we have you know, superseded the Old Testament and the Jews. Um, and, you know, and part of the proof of that is, we have all these countries that are Christians, and we have Christian rulers, and we have the Pope, and you guys don't have anything. Um, and it was, um, you know, a kind of argument that I think for us today seems like, yeah, like we don't think of the world like that, you know. Um, but, um, you know, it's it's somewhat not so different than people who say, you know, <clears throat> You know, I'm on the winning team in Super Bowl, and, you know, God was on our side, and we want to thank God, you know, for winning. You know, it's like it's this, it's that belief, somewhat, whatever, um, that God's on your side, and therefore you, you should win. Um, and so this, in part, is an answer to, despite the fact it looks like we lost, we haven't really lost. And it's not only God who has to uh, be long-suffering and be patient. It's like we, the Jewish people, have to be patient as well. So I I think that's one uh, one piece of what's going on here, of um, trying to explain, like, how could could it be that we look like the losers in history um, and abandoned by God? Uh, or punished by God, certainly. Um, and and this is a way um, um, to understand that. Um, and that's like the third paragraph there. They, they, uh, which isn't the text, it's just the explanation. Um, they thus restored the crown to God by including mighty and awesome in the prayers, praising God. Hence, they were known as the men of the great assembly. They did a great thing by putting that back, right? And and it also um, reflected the practice of the Jews saying the Amidah, that they, they were saying that. They were saying uh, <clears throat> those, um, those three things t- together. 
So that would be the text if we stopped there and didn't read the end. But let me just pause for a moment because I want to read the end and then after reading the end, I'll open it up for people's comments. But if there's certainly if there's any, you know, questions, particularly I wait, I didn't understand something or uh, confusion. Let me uh, just. um, No, Bert's got his hand up, of course, but but I'm going to jump over Bert because I'm the senior rabbi. Okay. that. Um, and I'm just going to say, I think this is a common, I like what I love about the text you brought is that I think this is a common problem for all of us who have to look at a set prayer or a set prayer book or a set liturgy and say, you know, I don't feel that today. Like I don't feel Ha'el Hagibor Behanor. I don't feel God who's so, you know, uh, exalted and amazing and awesome you know, if that's truly who God is, God's not doing that for me this week. And so really, like, you want me to say these words and I don't feel them? What does that mean? I only pray what I feel? Does it mean I only say the Shema when I feel it? And the tension of that between um, you know, the set matbeah, which we talk about a lot in, in our community, the matbeah, the kind of like the set stuff, and the kavanah, like the prayer from the heart and and when they conflict, what do you do? So I just really appreciate that you brought this forward. And I think Bert. Well, I just had a, a, a question. Yeah. Uh, these descriptive terms are not really saying all powerful in that God controls absolutely everything. They're just saying that God is powerful and mighty. And that whole issue that you raised before of, you know, like why do bad things happen to good people? Uh I've heard some rabbis argue that that really is more of a Greek and Middle Age vision and that back in these days, uh, God wasn't regarded as controlling absolutely everything. After all, in Egypt, not only were the, were the Jews enslaved, but supposedly God forgot them and didn't hear their, didn't hear their cries and later heard them. Yeah, I think, I mean... You know, I think the notion of God um, develops, excuse me, I'm just, let me take another drink. I mean, you could see its development um, in in the Bible itself, you know, the, the, you know, the God at the beginning and the God later doesn't seem to be necessarily the same, at least if you're not coming from a completely traditional point of view. But I mean, I, I think the, problem begins when you basically say there's one God. When you go to monotheism, <clears throat> then you can no longer say, well, you know, you know, the droughts because the rain God's mad, you know. Um, and, and you know, it may not be completely like, like, as you said, like in a sense, the, in the story of Egypt, right, there's like, you feel there's a sense God's fighting with the Egyptian gods to prove he's the he's the he's the stronger God, right? So you still have some sense that there's other gods, um, but I think as it goes on, it becomes um, there is only the God of Israel, who is the God of the world, right? Uh, um, not just of the Jewish people or of the land of Israel, um, and then you you get to the problem. <coughs> Of uh, and, and its biggest problem is when bad things happen to good people, 
here I was talking more broadly of the fate of the Jewish people. Um, uh, but again, even in the Talmud, they're struggling with this issue. Um, and, um, you know, I think there are two classic answers. One is um, there's a reason for these things. We just don't understand it. God knows, but we, we, we can't understand. We can't explain why these terrible things happen. Um, and then there's an, an, another, uh, that's the mo- most common, and I think that's the one that still people would say today. Another one in the Talmud, it talks about um, this concept that uh, God causes the ones God loves to suffer. Yisurim shall ahava. Right, so the saintly, you know, you can get, be very saintly, but you know, you can have a horror, a terrible life. Um, uh, there's, you know, one of the rabbis of the Talmud says, you know what, God, I'll skip on the the suffering from love. Give it to somebody else. I don't need this token of your affection. Right, so there is that rejection, you know, already of that. Yeah. I don't, we don't like that answer, you know, but I, I think that's, that's there. And I was talking mostly in the sense that this becomes particularly later than this text, but in, in the in the Middle Ages, religious polemics are, are very much around, um, you know, well, you're, you guys are losers. Like, so um, some of you may have, you know, heard or been taught about uh, the Khazars. The, uh, the Kuzari is a book about this. There was a kingdom, you know, sort of off towards, you know, Ukraine and farther over someplace where the king converted to Judaism in the middle. And apparently this happened. This is actually true. Um, and so the Jews were very excited because they could say, well, we're subservient here in Europe, but over there, there there's a Jewish king, and there are Jews in power, right? So that's, the polemic is over power, like you're powerless, like you're obviously losers, right? So they were very excited about that. But the same kind of polemic was going on between Christians and Muslims. So when Muslims were kind of, you know, conquering lots of places, they were saying, well, obviously we're the we're God's, you know, chosen. And then when the Christians push back, then, oh, you know, the Crusades, God's fighting on our side. Let's get Jerusalem. No, let, you know, that becomes, so that was a very, uh, that was a piece of this. Um, but I want to, I want to um, go to the, to the last part, which I think, um, at least how I want to read it, uh, changes this. So if it ended there, that's I think would be the understanding of the text, right? And the, the men of the great assembly did a great thing. But then the the third line from the bottom, how could the prophets and the the text actually says the rabbis, um, they imagined Jeremiah and Daniel were actually like rabbis, um, just like they imagined that Abraham was was observant and probably like a rabbi. Um, I mean, they knew they were prophets, but they thought they were prophets and rabbis. How could the prophets overturn a ruling by Moses, right? So Moses, 
you know, here's the Torah directly from God. Um, and how could Jeremiah and Daniel say, uh, I don't care the fact that Moses said you should say God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome. I'm going to leave out, you know, one of these words. So that they, they're asked, the Talmud is asking the question, how, okay, we get what the men of the great assembly did, but what were Jeremiah and Daniel doing? How could they have done that? And this the last line is like very interesting, I think. Rabbi Elazar said, <clears throat> because they know that God is truth, that the essence of God is truth. Therefore, they could not ascribe false attributes to God. They couldn't, they couldn't say something that was false. And that's how the text ends. To me, <clears throat> it's very interesting and I think telling that Jeremiah and Daniel get the last word in the text. Um, and there are other uh, rabbinic texts where they express uh, questions or doubts. Um, sometimes they put it into to, uh, other people's, uh, maybe it's a non-Jew who asks the question. Um, and um, I, I think um, scholars have a sense that sometimes they, you know, they have the, the they have the questions that anybody that's thinking about this struggles with, right? Just as I said, they struggled with like why are why do they saw in their own lives that there were people who were uh, righteous and pious who who, who suffered. Um, there was um, one uh, one uh, person, uh, one rabbi, I mean scholar in the Talmud. They says he he had a, ten children, all of whom died in childbirth. I mean, died young, right? So it's a completely tragic life. Um, so they they knew the reality, um, and in that sense, I think there's there's sort of there um, in getting Jeremiah and Daniel to ask the question that is bothering them. Um, and it's, uh, I, again, I think it's powerful that um, who gets the last word, as in many conversations, um, I, I think it's striking that they put this part last. They could have put it before they they praise the men of the great assembly. Um, and, and related to uh, what Rabbi Amy was saying, I learned this, the first time I learned this text, I was in my freshman year, which was many years ago. I attended Yeshiva University in New York uh, to kind of continue my Jewish studies. Uh, I was there for a year and then transferred. Um, I was unhappy there. But uh, I was, um, and we, uh, I, the main thing we did was we, we had a class in Talmud um, and uh, uh, one of the teachers, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, was teaching the, the, the class. And I, I think like once a month, he would say, uh, you know, it was five days a week. So once a month, he would say, um, I'm going to give a talk about something else. And he taught this text. That was the first time I'd ever heard this text. And he then said, um, I, he was thinking about this text because he was thinking of Elie Wiesel. Uh, this was um, in 1967-68. It was just when Elie Wiesel was becoming uh, very well known 
he just began giving a series of lectures at the 92nd Street Y. Um, his book, Night, had come out a few years before um, and, and some of his other work. Um, and uh, Rabbi Lichtenstein saw this text from uh, uh, as uh, a dialogue with Elie Wiesel. And if, uh, for those of you who read Night, um, uh, might remember there's a very powerful episode in Night, which is, you know, uh, Wiesel's own story of being in the camp. And there's, uh, the Nazis are executing a number of the, uh, uh, hanging of a, a, a few of the Jews in the camp because they were, I, I think they were trying to, and gather arms or something. Um, and um, he, Wiesel, I won't go into details, it's so horrible, but the, the, the scene he's describing and all the uh, all the prisoners in the camp have to watch uh, the execution take place by hanging. And um, someone behind, they're all standing in rows, and someone behind Wiesel says, you know, where is God? Where is God? And uh, uh, I, th- I think yeah, I, I, now I'm telling this. I I think it's God. Uh, sorry, someone maybe it was Wiesel said he's on the gallows, right? Um, and you know, large, more broadly, Wiesel challenges um, traditional notions of God and belief coming out of the, his own experience and the experience of so many others um, during the Holocaust. Um, and, um, and you know, interestingly enough, Robert Lichtenstein heard Wiesel's words and, and thought this text echoed them, I, I think correctly thought as, as, that's why I was struck with what Amy said. Um, it's a, you know, it's the same, kind of question. I mean, obviously, Wiesel's experience in that moment was, was, you know, horrible to the extreme. Um, uh, and uh, Lichtenstein, who was, you know, completely orthodox rabbi, very well-known orthodox rabbi, said he sympathized with um, Wiesel's position and Wiesel's struggle but he, he said, in the end, uh, the men of the Great Assembly restored the, the words uh, to the liturgy. Um, or in the end, they kept their belief in, in God. Um, and, and that's what we need to do. Um, and it was uh, only some years later, thinking about the text, that I said, well, I don't know. I think I want. I'm reading the text as I just shared with you. Is that um, um, Jeremiah and Daniel get the last word? Um, and and if you read the text with that emphasis, then it's. And I think it's saying that um, you need to speak from the truth of your own experience. Um, that that truth is also truth. Um, and and it's you know it's not simple and it's not you know uh, oh yeah that's okay, oh, just speak always from your own experience um, um, but um, 
I I think that's uh, you know we talked some about truth at the last session. I think this is this a different aspect. Of this about um, about what is what is the truth that you're experiencing, um, and and it could be that um, the you know it. I, I think as uh, Rabbi Amy, uh, I think you, you suggested this that it could be that. That truth is the truth of now, and it could be next week or months from now. Um, you know, the truth might be different, right? Um, I mean, I could be going through a really difficult time now. Um, and so that it's a moment of truth, and I'm not going to, I don't know about the great and mighty, or I'm not going to say, let's all sing out joyously to God when I'm not feeling, feeling joyous. Right. Um, so let me um, let me stop there and, and open it for people's um, comments. Um, so I, I want to start by saying uh, thank you uh, for bringing this teaching. Uh, I'm Rasfeld. And um, I, and I, I am was struck when you were talking about we're losers. Like I'm so struck by the way that cripples Jews by saying we're losers, they killed us all, they murdered us all, they still want to murder us all, like we're losers, like, like how that how that leads to this Jewish position of defensiveness and rushed anger and rushed to being offended because we're the losers in history. And we have been over and over and over and over. And I call this PTSD Judaism. Like I see it around support of Israel where people are not thinking, they're actually just reacting to PTSD circumstances. And so we support Israel no matter what and no matter how, and we have to stand against any kind of expression and they go crazy, like quickly about um, we're the losers in history. And that means they're always out to get us and we always have to be defensive. And in the same way, it's the Arab understanding, like right, of colonialism and they've been defeated and they've been humiliated and they've had everything from their culture taken from them, which so much of our texts that you've quoted, you know, um, Talmud and whatever are Aramaic. They're actually right set in the model of Babylonia and the model of the Arab world. And they too have been humiliated by defeat after defeat after defeat of colonialism and how the text you just brought, it just came to me all of a sudden. It's like, that's exactly why we have so much tension around anything in the Middle East and even in America about, you know, Jewish responses to stuff in the Middle East, because everyone's coming from this place of we're the losers and yeah. right. And then fill in the blank. And there's no rational thinking past we're the losers. And that that means X, Y, Z. Um, and, 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 and at a fundamentalist, you know, kind of commitment level. So. And I, I just want to put that out yep. there. That was a huge insight that just came to me nice. as you taught this text. Yeah, nice. Other um, comments? I, 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 there's one thing as as you're you know thinking about it. There's one thing I I think that could be an important factor in these things. Um, Jeremiah experienced the destruction of the temple. The men of the great assembly lived you know, a couple centuries later, right? So is it different 
when it's your personal experience, right? Um, Ali Wiesel was in a camp. You know, he saw those things. This isn't, he's just telling a story that other, you know, and, um, and, 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 you know, and part of the, you know, what you just said, uh, Amy, is like, you know, for the, for people who've, you know, people who've lost someone in, in we're talking about the uh, uh, Israeli-Arab conflict, who've lost someone in, in war, or even worse, who've lost someone in a terrorist attack. On either, You know, like there's just, there's a, it's not easy to say, well, we, we should make peace, right? Um, but it's, so I think there's something to that, you know, and um, and and it also that that's also that sense, you know, that maybe there can be healing when oh, when time has passed, when the wounds aren't so fresh, um, and when you know both mm-hmm. societies have been living for a while with this, and um, you know, as everybody says, you, you don't make peace with your friends; you make peace with your enemies. And if if both people can get to a place where it's like we actually have suffered the same thing and which no one wants to say about their enemy, like we've suffered the same thing, right? The, you know, what you're lifting up is that abandonment of like the Ha'el Hanorah, like the Vagadol, like the, the big, amazing presence that would save us from all of this didn't show up. It didn't show up. The, the presence that showed up at the sea did not show up at the Holocaust and did not show up at the destruction of the Second Temple. And for the Arabs did not show up when colonial forces came in and decimated their empire. And the, the, when the God that you believe in and pray to so hard doesn't show up, what do you do with that? And then when it becomes anger and hatred because we've been betrayed maybe by our own God, like that's, that's intense. That's intense, which I feel is under some of this. You can't tell me Jews who are coming out of PTSD Judaism. You can't tell me they don't look at God and go, seriously, you're a sick parent, right? That you love me, you treasure me, and yet you allow me to be tortured and abused over and over and over again. How am I supposed to relate to that? Like with any kind of understanding that I'm worthy of love and respect and dignity and health and safety. Um, so I see uh, two hands, Judith, and uh, is it Dana or D- Dana? Dana? Dana. Dana. I'm Judith. Dana. Yeah, so Judith and Dana. The question I had is, are you familiar with the writings of Mark Twain about the Jews? Yes. <laughs> I think that is the opposite of we are losers. And for anybody who hasn't read it, I suggest you Google it and read it because I think it's really amazing that he wrote what he wrote when he wrote it about for such a small percentage of the world's population. Look at what we've accomplished. It's not the loser mentality at all. Do you have any comments about Mark Twain's ideas? Well, you're right. It's, 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 he takes the, it's the same facts, you know, in that sense. It says, how do these people survive all this time? You know, it must be that God really likes them. <laughs> uh, I haven't read the, you know, the, the essay in decades, but it's, uh, you know, and it's very Mark Twain 
charming and a little bit funny. Yes. But it, yeah, right. So you get, you know, he, it's this philo-Semitic and usually we're much more familiar with anti-Semitic and, right. and, and because and Twain's like, you know, sort of cool guy, you know, whatever. So, so and, yeah. In middle America where that's not popular. Yeah. Be- yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, right. Uh, right. And I don't, I'm sure people have written about, I, I don't know what his contacts were particularly with Jews or anything, but. Well, he knew Shalom Aleichem for one thing. And, and he said he was the Shalom Aleichem of America. Yes. Right. I and Shalom that. Aleichem said that he was the Mark Twain of, of <laughs> Brooklyn. <laughs> Very cute. Right. So, but that's the, you know, the look, it's, it's, um, you know, um, uh, you know, um, many people went through the. I mean, many Jews went through the experience of the of the Shoah in the camps. Mm-hmm. Some people came out of that saying, I, "I'm never going to believe in God again. I can't believe. I'm done. It's over completely." You know, and they were religious before, not people. Who, and then there were some people who discovered God. You know, you know, right. how, how did I survive if God didn't want me to? I saw all those other people. Right. So, you know, part of it is and that's one of the larger challenges of truth, not even in extreme situations, is people experience take kind of the same experience, but they're not the same person. You and I aren't the same people. So, you know, we don't have the same history, but even even if we grew up together, even if we were twins, we wouldn't necessarily have the same response. Right. So. My truth is, I can't say that. Your truth right. is, someone's truth is, you can, right? So, um, uh, and, and I, you know, I think that's part of the challenge right. to understand, you know, and, and, it, and it's complicated because there's some things that are just not true, right? You know, the Holocaust happened. Like the, the opinion that it didn't happen is not like your truth. It's false, yeah. right? But but it's there's not a lot an alternate fact, <laughs> right? But there's a lot that's eliminating that. There's a lot where people just have different ex- responses and different experiences and different senses of you know what's the way forward. You know, um, wait. So who is Dana? I think Dana. Oh, it, it's yeah. it's a. Uh, I know it's getting a little late here, so I just was appreciate Rabbi Amy's uh, comment about t- the tension because it it's like a theme even with your earlier class. You know who who can convert to Judaism? Uh, you know what words are right in the prayer? You know what is you know God and the truth? And I just I have this thought that the tension is always there in whatever era we're living in kind of that tension never goes away whether you're living in the times of the rabbis or you're living now and you know we have to make sense of it but it kind of it's not like we're always losers but we're always feeling the tension you know we feel the tension at the Mm -hmm. wedding when we crush the glass you know and uh so i i just was i wanted to note that um, yeah, I wondered right. if that tension is part of how we see ourselves. Well, I also think, you know, I hadn't thought of it that way, but the, 
you know, I'm reading the text the way I want it. Obviously, my teacher read it the other way. But what's great about the text is that it's both it's there. The tension is there. Both those voices are kept in the text. They didn't they if it ended without that, you know, the response of Jeremiah and Daniel, it would have said whatever. But now it's, you know, I can read it. They get the last word. Rabbi Lichtenstein read it. You know, we we hear that voice and we say, we're sorry. You know, we still have to follow the rules, right? There's a greater truth, you know, and 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 that's the tension, right? And and to understand it's not it's it's never simple, you know, and uh, and, how do you, and how do you live with that? And you know, without just you know, without saying, well, okay, any everything's true, no, you know, or nothing is true, or you know, we can't talk to each other because you have your truth and I have my truth. Um, and somewhat, it's recognizing that you, your truth could be true and my truth could be true, even though they're opposite truths. Right, um, and as I'm leaving aside things that are just false, you know, that's. Um, did I see another? Yeah, if I, if I may interject, sure. uh, I think this whole discussion uh, is addressed by what Mordecai Kaplan said when he introduced Reconstructionist Judaism, that there is no supernatural God that. God does not interfere in human affairs, uh, that God doesn't make winners and losers. And I think I find that more intellectually satisfying than all these other approaches. Your comments? Yeah, no, I, I, right. I mean, that's, you know, theologically, I think you're right. It's it, Kaplan's, and the you know Kaplan didn't like any of the traditional answers about um, you know how how bad why do bad things happen and and you know and um, um, you know Harold Kushner who was a student of Mordecai Kaplan wrote you know when not why but when bad things happen to good people and you know he basically said I'd rather believe in a God that's good and doesn't act in the world than believe in a God that acts in the world who I think does bad things. If that's my choice, and he, he thought it's a choice. He saw that as a choice. I think one, one can easily make that argument. And, and you know, that's what, and I, you know, he, he wrote that very well in a, you know, in a, in a way, in a book that was made it accessible, which you couldn't always say about Kaplan's writings. Um, it's heresy. Um, but I, I, Yes, and, and, and therefore, ultimately, just as I did with the last text, I want to read this not so much about God and, and prayer and, and liturgy, but it's really about, again, it's like the, like the truth, right? And, you know, what's the truth? And, um, and, you know, and, you know, thank God that, you know, we're not going to all, we're not going to be in concentration camps and that experience, but but we all experience loss, you know, we all, and, and that's why I was saying that, um, you know, the way I, I understand the halakha, that is that um, between the time that a loved one dies and the funeral, 
you're you're basically free from the traditional commandments like praying. Um, and you know, some people think it's because you're supposed to just focus on you know the details of the funeral, or that uh, you know, like my mind's what well, I'm really gonna like you know, to say, and all these other prayers, but like my mind's just not there. You know, I'm not thinking about that stuff. But I think it's actually because it's very, you can't say, or I don't want to say you can't. I think many people find it very hard to say God is great and, and marvelous and wonderful when, when they're, when they're, uh, there's an expression of the Talmud, make Mutalifanov. When you're, the corpse is right in front of you, and that uh, the burial hasn't taken place, right? So it's very there, very fresh, you know. Um, and and to say all those affirmations about God, I think that's the time that you can't. And the tradition wisely says we're not going to try and ask you that. And it's like the one place, like even the ultra ultra orthodox people don't say. Well, I'm I'm going to be machmir. I'm going to be really from, and I'm going to dive in anyways, even though my father or mother just died. Like nobody does that, you know. And I I think it's I don't think they're thinking this, but I just think it's just it's an unreasonable request. And so I want to say, uh, Michael, how how freeing that is that we can say that as Reconstructionist Jews. And by the way, Rabbi Strassfeld is a Reconstructionist Jew. Um, so, you know, um, like that we can say that as Reconstructionist Jews with all confidence and all of our beliefs intact about what we believe about the world. That at this moment, I refuse to say, like, I refuse to say God is awesome and wonderful and terrific. And... We also stand at Kaddish, like, and say, blessed is the source of life, essentially. And, like, so the, the ones who want to say the corpse is in front of me, how could I possibly be asked to daven, are also saying, right, you know, yeah. God's blessed name should be lifted and exalted and whatever. And I, But I love that we as Reconstructionists can say, because both are true at the same time. Right. We are not going to stand up and say, you know, praise be whatever, because I can't right now. And we are still going to say Kaddish, which, you know, Lisa and her mom, you see Lisa and mom down there in the, in the corner of the, of the screen, they're doing that now during Shiva. Like they're going to stand and say Kaddish tonight at Shiva tonight. And it's going to say, like like this stuff that we've been talking about. We say, no, we don't say that because whatever, but we do. In Kaddish, and um, and I think that's the that's an inherent tension in progressive Judaism, which I appreciate. Which is, yeah, we're we're going to ask, we're going to be asked at this really difficult, horrible moment to stand and affirm the blessing of life and the mystery at the source of that, and the fountain of love, you know, that that is that, and hold that that there isn't a supernatural God who we can thank or blame. Or things that happen in our lives. So I, um, we should uh, be ending. I just let me just say one last thing about the text. Um, um, I, I, I discovered something recently about the text which I never thought before, which is <clears throat> there is the there are three, you know, uh, descriptions of God. One uh, that is Gadol, great. 
which nobody takes that away. Um, now, you could say because they couldn't find a verse that didn't <laughs> add the other two without God the good. No, but big. that's like the too practical, you know, like let's let's be a little mystical here, right? Um, and then it struck me, hmm, isn't it interesting that the one name that, that God uh, still has is Gadol? And what's the name that is given to the men of the assembly? They could have been called the smart men of the assembly, the interesting, the wise men of the assembly. They're called the men of the, the, of the great assembly, the Gadol. They share that name, that attribution. And I think um, that I want to understand that. You know, and, and picking up what Rabbi Emmy just said, it's like we live we live with the contradictions, right? We hold both those things, and sometimes we say, "I'm only going to hold one," you know, and that's what I, the way I was interpreting that, you know, that the time right after a, a death, right? Um, um, it's like you don't have to try, you know, we'll make it easier, kind of thing. But but basically, we try to hold both things and. I, I would argue that's what makes us gadol, the, the potential for human beings um, to hold, you know, irreconcilable differences at the, you know, the same time, sometimes less, sometimes more, um, and, and live with that and try to make the world uh, better. And in that sense, we are in the image of God who is great, and, you know, again, using Kaplan, you know, you see God acting in the world um, through people acting in the world. And when we're kind and, and caring and when we make a Shiva minion um, and when we hold each other's hands when we can again, um, you know, in comfort, that is, you know, we we have that potential. And so... That's the real answer. To, I think I overemphasized the loser thing because everybody was picking up. The real answer is we're not losers. We're gadol. And, and, and that, it can't be taken away, right? That, that attribute can't be, that potential is always there. It's not always realized. We're obviously, you know, lots, too many times we're not the best person, you know, the best Michael that I could be. But um, but the, we are created in the image of God, and I think part of that means is that potential to be great and to have a powerful impact on, on our world. Um, and that can't be um, taken away um, by anybody. And, and that's not about history. Um, it is the essence of, of who we are. And that's – so Gadol – we, we all remain. Amen. Do we have a new guna for us to take us out? Uh, is there time for that? or uh, Do we have? Yeah, huh? we're, we're at no. 530, so. I'm, I'm fine, but I, I just, I'm respectful of everybody's. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, we'll see without the words, without, you know, so there's a melody that I'm, I'm sure some of you know about um, uh, <clears throat> the world is a narrow bridge, but uh, you know don't don't be af- don't be afraid, right? Because 
How would you say? Be everything. Huh? Be everything was uh, Nachman's original quote. Was it's not lulechachet klal. It's it's that you shouldn't allow fear to be everything. That it should. Right. Yeah. Only thing. And, and, like, and just remember, you're God's all. That's all. Nachman. That's all you have to. Do. The world is a scary, scary place. And our work is to not let fear define everything for us. We do that together. We do that in the shadow of teachers from generations past. We do that sitting in the grace of the teachers who choose to show up now, like Rabbi Michael Strasbourg. We do that most of all as a kahal, as a community who refuse to give over to isolationism and to fear and to egotism and to individualism that we choose over and over and over again as a community, not to let fear, not to let being alone define who we are. We come together. And that gives us the strength to be gadol, the biggest gadol, the biggest big of anything. I trust all of you uh, to do that and to keep doing that. I thank Rabbi Michael Strasfeld for showing up to be a teacher among us. So we get to hear different styles and different kinds of voices and different ways of uh, learning and leaning into Torah, into the wisdom of our tradition. <laughs>